listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full-time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best-selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Podcast. With me today, I've got a very, very, very special guest and a real treat, someone who is absolute royalty in the jazz fusion world as far as guitar players go. An amazing player, a fellow Aussie who's been all around the world and has now settled in Spain of all places, and someone who's got an enormous contribution to the teaching side of guitar, as well as to jazz and fusion playing, and even coming up with his own tuning, which is starting to influence my guitar playing as well. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast a very special guest, Frank Gambali. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. And, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with uh, Frank Gambali, definitely check his stuff out. You're going to hear me say that numerous times over the podcast. And someone who's been a huge influence in my playing and my guitar, you know, educational upbringing. So, yeah, I couldn't be more delighted to have him on the guest, uh, the guest on the podcast. And it's almost like I'm pinching myself saying, is this real? Is this real right now, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my first question um, is, you know, taking you right back to the start. And that's basically... From my understanding, back in the early 80s, you made the, you know, the, the decision to fly over to LA and go to Guitar Institute over in Hollywood there um, and basically pack up from Australia and make the move. So, you know, what was that like, you know, in the great unknown of the 80s and the exciting times of the shred era back there? What, you know, prompted you to pack everything up and move over to Hollywood? Well, you know, uh, I grew up in Canberra, and it was a beautiful place to grow up at the time. In the 70s, there was lots of clubs to play in. I'm going back a little further. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was working all the time. Since I was 13, I was in bands. My older brother, Nunzio, was uh, was a bass player, and he got all the gigs, and I just followed along, played lead guitar, and sang. It was amazing. There were all these, uh, because it's Canberra, there's all the national, uh, the, the you know, Italian-Australian, German-Australian, Finnish-Australian, every nationality of club because of all the consulates there. So there was never a shortage of gigs. You know, eventually I got into a lot of cool music that was coming out of L.A. at the time. You know, I would look at the album covers and, they would always say, you know, recorded in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, Hollywood, Los Angeles. I went, I have to go there. You know, it was a magnet calling my name, uh, especially, you know, uh, some of the, you know, Steely Dan and and uh, Chick Corea and these, the, all these records were being made uh, right there in Hollywood. So I said, you know, Canberra's great, and I could go to Sydney perhaps and, you know, make my way there, uh, or I'll just go completely leapfrog Sydney and go straight to L.A., and that's what I did. But it took several years to save up the money to go. 
you know, I was a young kid. Uh, when I was finished high school, I was living with my parents for several years. And I literally uh, was practicing 12 hours a day. I just was so into the guitar. And my older brother, Nunzio, would have come with me. But, you know, he got, uh, you know, he had a family already at, uh, in his early 20s. So, But he did do, uh, he opened a huge music store, which is still one of the biggest stores in Australia's uh, pro audio uh, supplies. Uh, that He founded that store. He started it. And he was the first guy to have mail order uh, in Australia. And so he went over, did some uh, reconnaissance for me, and he went to, GIT, and he handed in my uh, audition tape, and he said, you should definitely go. It's it's great. Everybody's sitting around playing guitar. It's just a hive, you know. So I went, I'm definitely going. It took about, uh, you know, eight months or a year to save up the money to go. And I sold everything. I sold my guitars. I just brought one guitar with me in uh, a suitcase. And, uh, you know, Hollywood at that time, uh, looked a bit like a war zone. I thought, this is Hollywood? It looked like, uh, you know, it was terrible. It had really reached rock bottom in 82. You know, luxury hotels that were refinished were actually looked like, uh, you know, all the windows were shattered and it was a squat when I got there. You know, you wouldn't even believe it was the same Hollywood. Uh, and I'm glad over the years it, it uh, cleaned up its act. But at the time, I was kind of, you know, quite afraid to be on the streets as a young kid with my guitar. Well, you know, America's very serious guns and and violence. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens there that never happens in Australia. So I was a bit freaked out. But, you know, it was a fantastic school and the experience was amazing. And I met a lot of great people. And, you know, I can draw a straight line from that school experience to Chick Corea, my gig with Chick Corea, which really, really launched my career through the people I met. You know, you, you kind of, I could have stayed in Canberra and nothing would have happened. But for me, my dream, I was so into music and guitar and still am. <laughs> Nothing's changed over all these years. Uh, I had to get closer to the source was basically it. You know, I said I could get discovered in Canberra, you know, maybe if it was the YouTube era and I was jamming in my bedroom, but unlikely. And, uh, you know, this was before Internet and all that. So I had to get closer to the source. And it was the best decision I ever made, you know, because I always thought if nothing happens, at least I've gone to have a look. And I'm, I'm aware, you know, uh, and who knows what may happen. I said, I can always come back to Canberra, <laughs> you know, uh, not much changes there. So, um, so, but I never did actually, that was it. I, it was a one way direction. Yeah. And I never looked back since. No, I didn't. I mean, I love Australia, but for me it was, uh, in a way it was just too far from everything. You know, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. And I love it dearly, and I still go back and visit family, and my brother still lives there, and, you know, but for me, career-wise, uh, you know, and it was the same when I decided to leave America just recently in the middle of a COVID uh, pandemic. I considered Australia, but for me, as a jazz musician, a fusion guy, uh, you know, Europe is still a viable, uh, there's so many jazz festivals in so many countries. 
I just, uh, I work mostly in Europe these days. Uh, I still do tour in, in America and South America and, and Asia occasionally, but a lot of it is Europe. So I thought that's the most logical place. And, you know, Barcelona is very central to all of Europe. And so, you know, I considered Australia again. You know, I always had this dream to retire in Perth because uh, I love Perth. It's a very, very beautiful city. Uh, but that, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, well, as long as you're happy where you are. And by the looks of it, you know, you've got a fantastic setup in the background behind you as well. So, yeah, and you had to move all that stuff during the pandemic. Uh, it was no easy feat, believe me. Was, uh, uh, the hardest part was getting all the, the stuff, you know. Uh, the shipping went crazy during that period. And uh, um, especially that there was a boat in the Suez Canal that blocked the, the Suez and boats. It couldn't get containers for months. So couldn't even ship the stuff. And we said, ship it over. And it took about three more months for them to actually ship. And so, you know. Anyway, logistics, let's talk music. <laughs> yes. So you're in Hollywood. We'll get back to that. And you did, I think, a year of uh, studying at GIT, and then they actually made you a member of the faculty after that. What, uh, what was that like? Well, the, the school was growing very fast at that time. And uh, so they took their star students and offered them jobs, you know, to, to teach, you know. I won student of the year in the, in the year that I was there, which is ironic, really, because I hardly went to classes. I was just in a practice room practicing. I went to selected classes, you know, uh, so a lot of the stuff I knew already. So I didn't really want to sit through something that I was already way, way on, on top of, you know. Uh, so the school was growing. And then I uh, taught there for four more years. Until 1986, in the summer of 86, I got the gig with Chick Career, and then I was off around the world on the most incredible journey. Yeah. And of course, you know, what was it like playing with Chick Career, especially, you know, so young getting that, that gig with him? What, the whole world would have changed, I would imagine. Yes, it did, uh, dramatically and overnight. And it just shows you that anything can happen from one day to the next. You know, I, I was lucky. I was one of the guys considered for an audition in L.A., uh, you know, because I was already I already had two albums out when I met Chick. And so I was already pursuing my own career also, which I continue to do side by side. I mean, people when they refer to me, they always used to say Chick Corea's guitar player. But, you know, I had a I had a career of my own going on the side, too making my own music and my own records. Uh, some people have only heard me on Chick's records, you know, and they have, don't even go deeper to listen to my own music. But, you know, it was an incredible experience. Chick, I was into him since I was 13, so it was a big deal uh, getting the gig with him. In fact, I thought that that's as high as it goes. It's only sideways from there, you know. And uh, it was... It was wonderful. I got to see the whole world so many times uh, playing alongside him. And, uh, you know, I had to, just like you were pinching yourself, I was doing the same going. That's the career on the same stage, you know. It, for a Canberra boy, that was, uh, you know, it was quite remarkable because I remember seeing Chick perform at Canberra Theatre and also in Sydney. Um, I don't remember the theatre in Sydney. Years and years before, and I thought, one day I'm going to play with that guy. You know? 
That was my big dream. I didn't think it was actually going to happen. <laughs> Careful what you wish for, I always say. Yeah, and, it sounds, it sounds like you wished it into existence. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm the right, I was the right guy for him. Uh, yeah, I was definitely the right guy. You know, I, I knew his songs sometimes better than he did. You know, the back catalogue, you know. I remember when in the audition, I said, can we play Humpty Dumpty? You know, he asked me, what do you want to play? I said, oh, can we play Humpty Dumpty, which is one of his tunes, a standard really these days. And he says, oh, no, I don't remember it. I went, what? You wrote it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I said, I'll show you the changes. <laughs> what a precocious kid I was at 26. Anyway, so, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, I remember the first tour, it was such a whirlwind. You know, I went from, you know, teaching at GIT and, and make, scuffling along, you know, to uh, traveling the world. The first tour was right around America, every city, just about every city. And then we were home for two weeks and then we went all through South America, you know, Brazil, Chile, Argentina. Um, and then we came back to L.A. for about two weeks and then we did all of Asia, you know. So I was ah. <laughs> it was just to see the world uh, and play on the best stages was really quite remarkable because Chick at that time was huge. We played five, ten thousand 10,000 people every night, you know. So it was quite spectacular uh, as far as uh, the band was concerned. And, and plus the other guys were remarkable musicians, uh, you know, Patitucci and Dave Weckl and Eric Marenthal. It was a beautiful band. And we all loved Chick, so it was all about the music. And then on top of all that was, you know, playing some of the most incredible compositions. The guy was a master. It was like being with... You know, uh, rubbing shoulders with Stravinsky or Bartok or, uh, you know, any of the great composers, Mozart. I, I, I keep him in the same regard. He's had that much output in his life and creative. Uh, just an amazing man, really, really, truly. Yeah. And when it comes to his compositions, is that something where, you know, he would sit down and say, hey, guys, here's the parts, or would you be actively involved in you know, contributing your part to his music? No, he, he was uh, the, the master composer. He wrote all the parts for everybody. Of course, because he comes from a jazz background, I mean, there was always space for improvisation. So we, we contributed in that regard. But the notes were all written. Every note was written. And it was up to us to interpret, you know, feel-wise, how to interpret or where to play it on the instrument. But we always played the notes that were written. And, uh, you know, and I wouldn't have changed a single note. It was always perfect. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was the nature of that, you know. And that's why... As much as I loved doing that, I was always, uh, you know, enjoying writing my own music so I could play my own stuff too. Uh, on the side, whenever we'd get back from a tour of three months, I would put my band right back together and start playing and touring. So it was like this endless flow, you know. And speaking of your compositions, um, I think I was in my second year of university when I was first exposed to you and I came from a rock and a metal background and got you know put into a jazz degree and I really really struggled in my first year because I didn't know my fretboard I didn't know anything about jazz or improvisation you know used to learn songs to pass exams and you know I just couldn't get into jazz and one of my teachers said hey have you heard of Frank Gambale and I was like 
no. And, you know, he put this song on and I think it was the first track of Thunder from Down Under, Human Beings. And I, you know, I listened to that and I was just like totally blown away by how it, unlike anything and it, it sounded completely exotic to me, but it had that rock sound to it, which, you know, I connected with. And yeah, that was that, that just changed the game for me. And then from there on, you know, I listened to that album on repeat and uh, he would basically give me your DVDs. He'd, uh, our, our university here in Melbourne that I went to had a whole section of your resources, and I was fortunate enough to start doing the Chop Builder and the Modes No More Mystery and things like that. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the wealth of resources that you released, um, were you proactive in releasing those and approaching companies or were people coming to you? What was it like when you started doing all your educational resources? Well, my first book I wrote while I was a student at GIT because – you know, nobody'd seen the sweeping before. Nobody, they thought I was from Mars, you know. So what on earth? They kept interrupting me. I was trying to, my friends, they were friends and, and fellow students, but they would hear me play and they go, what the hell are you doing? You know, what is that? So I actually sat down and wrote the entire speed picking book, which as far as I know, was the first ever book on the subject of sweeping. And... I wanted to call it sweep picking, but the publisher refused because they said nobody knows what that is. They won't have a clue. So they changed the title to speed picking, which at least gave people a clue what the what the book was about. You know, I was reluctant and, and fought that really hard. But, I, I, you know, I obviously lost that battle. But, you know, and now it's known as sweep picking. A lot of people only know it as economy picking which is another term for it as well. But, you know, I wrote the book and made photocopies. So when people, you know, look, I'm practicing, man, here, <laughs> take the book. That's what I'm doing. And it really was the, the first um, real explanation of the whole method and uh, pretty clearly uh, displayed in that book. And then I ended up doing a video afterwards. Once I started working with Chick, I mean, People wanted, they were coming to me, definitely, who is this kid? You know, I was a kid, 26. Um, I don't know how old you are, but I, I consider that a kid these days. Um, yeah, I'm only 30, um, 31, so, yeah, I'm still a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were coming to me. It was a, it was an era where guitar was still cool, you know, and um Playing to a high level was cool, you know. People had really stretched the boundaries in all kinds of directions. And so, you know, with the sweeping and playing with Chick Corea, you know, the magazines, I was on the cover of Guitar Player and, and countless other magazines, a lot of them on the wall back behind me. And same with the, uh, you know, instructional videos were a big thing right before, uh, you know, about a decade before the internet uh, killed all that. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, VHSs and, and stuff were really, really popular. And really two or three of my videos were the best-selling videos, uh, instructional videos ever made. Chop Builder still goes on and on and on and on. It's remarkable because it struck a nerve. It was whenever I made a video, you know, there was a year or two in between and I was doing a lot of seminars, uh, music clinics, all over the world, you know, when I'd be in a city, I'd have a day off, I'd arrange a clinic, you know, in Vienna or wherever I happen to be. And I would always take note of the questions, you know, because, you know, 
I, I tended to hear similar questions over and over. So I realized that there's a need for someone to explain that particular subject. And that was the case for modes, especially even, you know, teaching at GIT. People never really understood why, why should I learn all seven scales when they're all the same as the major scale? And the first thing I would say is, well, is a major chord exactly the same as a minor chord to you? And if the answer is no, then that's the significance of modes. You have to, each mode is a, well, I thought it was a terrible translation of the word moods because it should have been moods because each, you know, if you start them all on the same note and then you'll see that they are remarkably different, completely different, all seven scales. And so that's what, and then I took it one step further and created chord progressions based on uh, the modes. And that really, that was like the ha-ha, the aha, you know, wow, I get it. I would have people running across the street going, I finally get it, I understand, you know, and it's, I loved watching the light bulb go on for students and whoever else. And I still get comments to this day. I've just revamped all these uh, old videos and I have them on my online school with, you know, um, guitar profiles and all that stuff now and, you know, digitized and it's pretty cool. So, you know, they're still alive and still, still popular because the subject matter really strikes a nerve. If you don't know uh, about modes, modes no more mystery is, is the answer. That'll suss it out and you'll get it, the concept, and that's it. And Chop Builder, um, you know, I stole the idea from, uh, what's her name? Um, famous actress. Jeez, I can't even, oh, um, Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda back in the 80s was hot, 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 and she did all these uh, aerobic exercise videos and leotards, and they sold like the Jesus. They were on the top of the billboard charts for uh, video sales. And I thought, well, wow, wouldn't that be a good idea to do that for guitar, you know? Why not make sort of an aerobic-style video where you put it in, put the video in, and you play along, you know, there's a warm-up and then there's the, the, the hard part in the middle and then the cool down at the end, and that's exactly what I did. And I went through all the modes, you know, without stopping. It was this, you know, you start up, start with just get the right hand working on the alternate, and then there was some sweep picking. There was a bit of everything. And uh, it was a serious one-hour workout. I don't know anybody that's done it from start to finish without stopping. <laughs> but you can do it and you don't, nobody really has to do it that way. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great workout. You don't have to think about it. You put it in, you just play along with it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I definitely couldn't do it from start to finish. And I used to joke about the uh, the poor lads you had in the background helping you out. Like, you know, <laughs> how hard do they have to work to get the gig for the DVD? So... Well, they were friends of mine that were teachers at GIT, at the, uh, Dave Hill and Art Renshaw, uh, still dear friends to this day. We look back at that video and go, oh, we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. And 
You've obviously been in the game, you know, almost longer than anyone else in terms of musical education and definitely, you know, one of the pioneers of the fusion and the shreds uh, side of things. Um, you know, what have you noticed has changed in the field of musical education and guitar teaching over the, the last couple of decades? And, and, you know, what prompted you to go online and create your own music school? Well, uh, you know, I was involved with music schools in L.A. and there was one in particular. It was a, a private school, the L.A. Music Academy, and I was asked to be head of the guitar department, which I did for 10 years. And, you know, I, I was asked to write the curriculum too, which was a really big job. Uh, but it, it really was great because I still have the curriculum. In fact, the, the Harmony and Theory course is an 18-hour video uh, lesson on my online school now. So I sort of compressed a one-year course into 18 hours. But... You know, the school was, the head of the school was a guy who had a degree in agriculture. You know, I risked my case. Dealing with administration really drove me insane. Uh, you know, you would have, he would come up to me and say, listen, uh, Frank, the, the students are finding this to be a little bit too hard. Do you think you can make it uh, easier? I said, yeah, okay, sure, I can. So, you know, I condent uh, I took a one-year course and made it into a two-year course. So it, it you know, it opened up a little uh, longer, you know. But then, you know, there was, it was still too hard. And I thought, look, if you went to medical school, if you wanted to be a surgeon, for example, and you were afraid to cut cadavers apart and look inside the human body, I mean, real ones, you're never gonna. You're never gonna get anywhere, you know. So I was. I didn't want to keep diluting the material that you could. You know, you can get that from a community college. Why come to our school and study with Frank and Bali if you're gonna get this diluted? And you know, it became more about getting students in and out. It, it, it lost the whole essence of what education is about for me personally. So. You know, I said, okay, that's fine. I, I took my curriculum with me. And it wasn't for several years later that certain platforms existed. You know, I was asked to contribute videos to other platforms that are out there. There's a lot of, lot of options online. You know, I always say to students, you know, you really ought to consider your, uh, the teacher who's teaching. You know, I look at some of these things and, and, and like even the great James Taylor, for God's sakes, was doing guitar lessons, showing his, I love his playing and I love his music. He's a genius. But he's showing this G chord and he's, he's calling a major seventh and ninth. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, when it comes to theory, uh, you know, you you got to regard your sources. Who's teaching? What kind of experience do they have? Have they done any gigs, you know? Have they really been in the music business and a creative force with lots of albums and educational material that is, you know, you have options, but try to select a good one, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it seems to me like some people are uh, not quite sure or I love the, you know, learn guitar in, in seven days kind of makes me laugh every time, I, you know, or it's about <laughs> tricks. There's no tricks, you know. That's all snake oil or, uh, you know, the hair, hair tonic, you know. 
you know, just be careful, you know, select your sources, get your information from a good source, wherever it happens to be. You know, and a lot of great guitar players have great video lessons these days online. So, you know, I just wanted to have my own place to deliver the information exactly as I wanted to do it without filter, you know, because I know it's good. I know it's good material. And so, um, and, and it's been a terrific resource for a lot of great, a lot of musicians. You know, I have thousands of students studying and it's a beautiful thing. And they go to the source and they study directly. This is unprecedented times. This would never have been a possibility as uh, when I was growing up. Although I did in a way go to the source all the time because I was learning right off the LPs, you know, the vinyls. I would be listening and going over and over for hours, changing, you know, listening, moving the, the needle, you know, in the groove, picking up a lick at a time, you know. So to me, I went straight to the source. I think that's always important. If there's someone that you love as a musician, you should always go to them and listen either to the music or study with them or have whatever you can get from them, you know if that's your favorite source. For me, you know, I've had lots of terrific influences over the years. It's chronological, you know. When I was younger, it was blues. It was all blues. It was Hendrix and, you know, uh, lots of great guitar players. And so, but after 10 years, I went, you know, I kind of know this blues scale pretty well now, you know. Maybe there's some other chords and maybe there's some other kind of music, you know, and I remember I had an aha, you know, just like you described listening to my Thunder From Down under record and how it hit you. For me, it was an album called Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy uh, with uh, the first Return to Forever record with electric guitar. And although it had great guitar playing, Bill Connors, I was all over Chick Corea. For me, Chick, listening to his notes was just you know, it just got me. I just had to learn his solos because they were always infinitely, to me, at that time, more interesting than the guitar solos. Guitar solos, you know, did the usual pentatonic thing, which is great, but I was into all the notes. I wanted to get all those wild notes that he was playing. So I wanted to play it on guitar. And so, you know, a lot of that stuff was so impossible to play on guitar, I had to find a technique that would make it work. So it kind of was a bit of the push. And same with Michael Brecker's saxophone solos. Those guys, I loved their improvisations so much that they really helped uh, for me to develop the sweep picking in the first place because there, were no, there was no other way. I couldn't do it with just a standard alternate picking. It just wasn't possible. So, you know, that was a long answer. I don't even remember the question anymore. Yeah, well, a very well-detailed answer. And, you know, everything you're saying has just got so much value to people. And there's so many you know, directions we could go from here. Um, but on the topic of your online school, so it's obviously come out really, really successful. And you've got a, you know, a wealth of decades of teaching, which you've been able to put on there. In terms of the business side, in setting it up, in getting students to come to it, in, you know, getting people to help you in terms of a team, like what sort of you know, infrastructure did you have to put in place to transition into the online teaching and running your school virtually? Well, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to do education online. 
And it's a very big growing industry. It's a wonderful industry to be in, you know. I saw the writing on the wall a long time ago when I was uh, part of the uh, LA Music Academy because it's hard to get someone to come from Brazil to live in LA and go to a music school. There's, you know, rent and, you know, general living expenses plus the tuition. You know, I thought even like Berkeley is 32,000 bucks a semester. I mean, you could, you know, you can do a lot with $32,000 online. You know what I mean? Uh, I just don't know how, or, you know, these, and it's the same with the Ivory League, uh, universities they're uh, you know you i don't know how they <laughs> they do it really they're sort of pricing themselves uh, well they've all had to have online presence as well you know so i saw the move to online a long time ago uh, i started my first school in 2015 uh, which was right at the onset of all that and uh, i revamped it about uh, when was it? Right before the pandemic, September 2019, I relaunched this new platform, which is fantastic. And, um, you know, I have a couple of guys that help me out that uh, come and do the video recording. And I, I, the hardest part is writing the material and coming up with a concept. But nowadays, I have a terrific resource of students online that I ask them directly, what do you want to learn? What do you want next? And what I did that recently, and one of the overwhelming responses, well, I got several, but one was playing outside. So I've just done this massive course. I'm in the middle of it. I like to do the edits myself. It's time consuming. I just want it to look a certain way. I do the graphics. I love the, uh, you know, doing graphics too. And playing outside is a very strange subject. I was surprised that so many people wanted to, know how I would teach that subject, you know, and I stress right up front like a warning, you know, you make a lot more money playing inside, <laughs> believe me. So, you know, this is like the red light district, you know, it, proceed with caution. So, you know, I, I, I always preface playing outside with that, but it's really fun. Because, in fact, it, it becomes such a liberating thing that you can play any note on anything with the, right, with the right instruction and the right direction. So it's actually, yeah, I think uh, people are going to get a lot of big kick out of this next course. Um, but the platform, so I have people helping me, but I do, you know, we, I get the raw video and I love, uh, I spent about a year learning Final Cut Pro and it's just a lot of fun you know, doing what I need to do with that. I like to I like to edit myself because it's a lot of hours and if I was to farm it out and have someone else uh, do it, it wouldn't be cost effective, right? Because it takes a lot of time. So I do it in my spare time when I'm on a bus or when I'm, you know, traveling. On my last tour, I did a lot of editing um, in my spare time and writing. You know, I do as much as I can on a laptop and... Um, yeah, I keep cranking them out. I've got lots more coming. I, I just, you know, I, I'm listening to my students and, um, you know, and that's exactly the same flow that I've had for years. When I mentioned before I was doing seminars when I was teaching with Czech, I would listen to the questions. And it's really important to take in that input so that you see what the need is, you know. 
and I always try to address the need. So uh, that's what I'm still doing. I love to do it, you know. It's a really fun. And I love to be able to, you know, when I mentioned there's a lot of different ways to do it, like online, you can do a subscription. A lot of people have done subscription. A buddy of mine, Dave Weckl, the drummer, talked to me because I had my online school going and he asked me a lot of questions. And he decided to go the, the subscription route. But to me, that that is um, a lot more pressure because people are paying monthly. They're going to want stuff every month. And I found that to be a bit of a treadmill. I like to, mine's just a shop. You go online, you, you buy a course that you want, and then, you know, there's a community inside that, you know, there's discussions and stuff. But it's really just a shop. So... You know, you study the course on your own, and if there's questions, you know, I get around to answering them as well. But I don't want to be pressured into when I have to keep contributing material to the to the website. I do it as I go and as I have time and as I see a need. And it sounds like, you, you know, you definitely got your finger on the pulse in terms of, you know, finding out what people want and filling that need and, you know, helping them scratch that itch or solve that problem. And it seems like... Yep. Whether it was back in the 80s with your speed picking right up into playing outside, it's something that's, you know, contributed to your ongoing ability to help people and, you know, get them to that next level in their playing. Yeah. I, I like, I like uh, to see the light bulb go on, as I've mentioned before, you know. And the educational side of it's fun to me. You know, it's, it's, it's contributing to the community. It's like community service, right? I mean, I could be off on my own just playing gigs and, and not doing any of this, uh, and that would be fine too, making records, and hopefully people will listen to them. But, you know, I like to contribute. You know, I have a lot of information. I've learned a lot of stuff, and I've had a lot of great experience working with some of the best musicians that ever was, you know. And I've really studied also. I love studying music and, you know, finding the best way to, to describe something, you know. I always say I'm like water running downhill. I always try to find the easiest way for someone to learn something. And that's that takes a lot, you know. I remember there's, there's, teach, there's a lot of teachers, right? But why is it that, you know, you, you could go to five teachers and suddenly that one is the one that makes you go, I get it, whereas the other four it wasn't the case. And it could be the same information that's coming at you, but it's the way it's expressed makes all the difference when it comes to comprehension. Because education, to me, if it doesn't land, if the student doesn't understand, then the whole thing is pointless. It's all about the comprehension and getting it, the idea, the concept, the whole thing. Because that's how you internalize it. If you really understand something, then there's no doubt when you play, right? But if you're not sure, or you don't know what scale or what notes go on a certain chord or what phrase or whatever, you know, you're going to be timid. And, you know, uh, knowledge is power, I always say. It's a beautiful expression and it's the truth. But it's also the comprehension, you know, teaching is about communicating and getting the concept across to the student where they go, yeah, got it, you know. Wow. And I'm sure for all our listeners listening, like, you know, 
rewind that, listen to that two or three times because there's absolute wisdom shared by, imparted by Frank there. So yeah, Frank, it's, it's so great to, you know, hear your valuable insight on, you know, the whole journey of teaching. But again, so many guitar players, I think, fall in the trap of picking up teaching as a side gig and don't realize the impact they can have on their students. So a lot of students, unfortunately, get, you know, bad teachers or disengaged teachers, not because they mean mean bad, but just because um, they don't put enough weight in what they do or have an awareness of, you know, how much responsibility they have as a guitar teacher, you know, to their students. Um, and you sort of mentioned a bit earlier about, um you know, people just trying to get them to result quickly or just trying to get numbers through and that, you know, going against your teaching philosophy. So maybe, you know, what is your uh, philosophy when it comes to teaching and education? You know, I think it's a very philanthropic thing. It's, uh, it's important. The next generation coming up, it's, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of people that came before us and that's how humanity and, and human nature, that's how we progress. And you can see it in technology. You can see it in all areas of human endeavor, you know, whether it's biology or there's amazing stuff going on in medicine with CRISPR technology, you know, genome stuff. I mean, this all, this didn't happen before because, it, you know, everybody takes it one step further. And that's, for me, that's the essence of what I'm doing with my online school. I want to, I want, you know, and it's a free thing. You don't have to go there. There's lots of places for information. But my philosophy is to make sure that the standard is really always ultra high. You know, there's no fluff. It's all uh, stuff that if you study it and you do it diligently, you will benefit I'm absolutely, I always give 100% guarantee on that. If you do your due diligence when you're studying my material, you will come out much better. And something you mentioned before, you know, and like in the introduction to my 18-hour theory course is, a, and I think this is on the uh, the publicity video for it as well. I always go, you know, when you're learning guitar, you get, bits of information from all over the place. You might learn a lick from a friend. You might pick up a little thing off a record, you know, and you might read something. But, you know, the information comes from all over the place. And, you know, in five minutes or even less, one minute, I can listen to someone play and, and figure out where all the, the, the holes are. Because it really is, unless you, you build it methodically, and sometimes, you know, I make the analogy with a, a big high-rise building. When, when they're planning to build a high-rise building, the first thing they do is they go down about seven stories for the car park and the foundation of the building, right? It has to have solid foundation, without which the whole thing doesn't work. You can't start on the 10th floor or the 13th floor. You have to start with a giant hole in the ground. And so... Right at the start of this 18 long, 18 hours of uh, video instruction is setting up the notion that perhaps you need to step back, go down, re-begin. Re you know, you're, you're more aware, you're playing for several years, but you have to go back a little bit and maybe establish a new foundation 
to, to build from because there's holes. There's things missing from the information. You're not quite sure. You don't understand this, that, or the other. So I go right back to the beginning, you know, with intervals and understanding that and then chord construction. How to build a chord? What is a chord? What what is it? You know, is it? And then you know, then the harmonized scale, which is incredibly valuable information. Without which I can't play without any of this information. Absolutely solid in my head. I can't build from that. I can't improvise from that. Without, I mean, I you know, people write songs, three chord songs all the time. You you know, you don't need harmony. But to me. Uh, you know, if you study harmony, you, you're just smarter. You know, you have an endless resource of sounds. To me, the best artists are ones that are mixing all kinds of harmony. They're not just stuck on three chords going around all the time. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're pushing the boundaries. And so, you know, you have to go back and build a foundation and then plug in all the holes and then you can build from there. Then you can build your high rise. Uh, so it, it's, it takes a bit of persuasion to get people to do that sometimes, is to go back a little bit and revisit this information because a lot of guitar players are scared of theory for some reason. You know, I would say if you can count to 13, that's as hard as the math is for, uh, for theory. You know, learning theory is easy. Applying it is the hard part, right? So, but should all everybody should understand it? It's a it's a no brainer, really. Uh, but it has to be delivered in a way that's methodical and logical to be able to get it crystal clear in your head. Yeah, uh, and so many guitar players avoid theory out of ignorance, thinking it'll put them in a box or it'll make them conform to rules. But I always say, you know, once you know the rules and how everything works, it gives you the total freedom to go out and create whatever you want. Uh, but I also find, you know, from my upbringing, because theory is always taught in like a really stale classroom setting for piano players rather than guitar players. I think, you know, us guitar players get the raw end of the deal because we don't get taught theory as it should apply to our instruments. So I think yeah, well, uh, there's definitely musical directors for any band, keyboard players all the time, you know. It's always keyboard players. And, you know, it's because they know their stuff and they can arrange for the whole band. You play this, you play that, you do this. You know, they're coming from a theoretical point of view. They read, they can write charts, they can, you know, and that's a great skill. That gives you... Uh, there you're always paid twice as much as everyone else too, or more. But, uh, you know, I was going to say, you know, learning theory, my favorite couple of lines is if I learn theory, I'm going to lose my feel. That makes me laugh. Yeah. Another one is uh, uh, if I learn theory, I'm going to play jazz. That's another. Look, here's a, this is the best way to think of theory. Think of it as colors, End of story. They're colors. That's all. It's not a style. It's not a brand. It's not this, that, or the other. If you're going to paint, you want all the colors at your disposal. And that's how I think of theory as well. It's a palette, and that's it. And if you think of it that way, you won't get stuck into the notion that it's, oh, it's a theory, or I'm going to lose my feel. 
I have a heart. I have a pulse. I'm human. I'm never going to lose my feel, man, ever, ever. You pinch me, I'm going to feel it, you know. And so that's a ridiculous notion, uh, you know. So anyway, there's a few ideas there. <laughs> Most definitely. Well, Frank, we've asked you tons of stuff about musical education, but I think there's a bunch of guitar players listening to this podcast who are definitely going to want some guitar-related questions. So I know you're often heralded as, you know, one of the pioneers of sweet picking, but you've actually invented your own system of tuning. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Good question, and I will indeed. Um, I have an acoustic. I have lots of guitars set up with this tuning. Uh, in 2003... Uh, and I wish it was sooner. I've been playing about 40 years when I discovered this. And, you know, now that I think back, you know, hindsight has 2020. they say. It seems so bloody obvious now that I could be kicking myself for such a long time. But anyway, I won't go there. The thing is, uh, I've explored other tuning, open tunings. You know, there's Dad Gad and there's all these other ones where you tweak the tuning. That's all well and good, but the problem with that, it changes all the fingerings. It's like starting all over again. You might find a couple of cute little things and you make one song, but you feel like you're in a box because you could never probably improvise in the same way because you don't know the tuning like you know the standard tuning, right? Is that a fair fair uh, comment? 100%. Okay. I'll take that. <laughs> so I never really pursued them. Only uh, all my chordal stuff, I started playing piano at 17. I almost wasn't a guitar player if it wasn't for my older brother. Uh, for two years, I gave up guitar from 17 to 19 because I thought I want to be able to play any chord I want without, you know, and I ended up just writing a lot of music on the piano and I still play. I have a grand piano. I love it. I love the piano. <laughs> But, you know, I sort of went away from the chordal thing on the guitar. I mean, I play chords, of course, but all the close, cool voicings that I really wanted to play from the piano were virtually impossible on guitar. And it can be simple things. But anyway, what I discovered was if I put a couple of strings in a different octave, I could still play all the normal garden variety chords. This is the most brilliant part about this tuning. So I can still play all my regular voicings. I can, anybody can pick it up and play it immediately, right? That's a major plus, right? So I don't have to learn anything new. I can still play it like a normal guitar. However, now, instead of a half step looking like this, Right? I can play it like that. So here's the tuning, basically. If you imagine the fifth fret capo, right? If you had a capo on the fifth fret, uh, A, D, G, C, E, A, right? Those are the notes, fifth fret, with me? <laughs> okay, those are the open strings, except the first two strings are down an octave. So this E would be the second fret of the D string. It's a wound, what would be a B string on a guitar. It's a wound D string tuned up to E. 
And then the top string is a G string tuned up to A, which would be the same pitch as the second fret of the G string. So now I can play, like for example, I'll take something simple. I'll make sure. And for those of you listening, uh, to the podcast at home. We'll pop the video up on the website so you can see exactly what Frank's doing. One, two, three, five is a simple voicing on guitar normally. Uh, uh, you'd need a hand, you know, eight inches long, but I can do it in a simple position like that. So a minor version. You can't, these are the simplest chords. But that little cluster in there. See, I can play a half step like this, which is bizarre, but, and major sevens. This is my favorite keyboard version of a major seven. It's seven, seven, one, three, five. It would be like this. Those notes there, it's just impossible. And I can play it like a garden variety major seven. And I can play it anywhere. And I can put a different bass. I can play any chord, it's just, this 13th chord is one of my favorite voicings on a keyboard. It's the same as playing, playing those four notes together, which would be the sixth, the flat seven, the second and the third, or the ninth and third. But I can play it as a chord. That's impossible on regular guitar. Anyway, so these chords are so beautiful. And you can't do it. It's like another instrument. possible now and 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 you can uh, just evolve further because it's the same tuning so you could play it as a normal guitar but there's I can usually add that one more note that I can't you know, I can play those kind of chords anyway. thing I can imagine. When I first discovered this, uh, I had this uh, Yamaha silent guitar and I was 
uh, we were in the studio with Chick Corea doing the uh, To the Stars record. In, I think it was nine, uh, 2002. So I must have already figured this out. I keep saying 2003, but maybe uh, a year sooner. And I went, hey, Chick, listen to this. And I put he- the, the headphones on his head and I started playing all these wild chords. He went, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I said, don't, you don't really understand the significance of this, do you? He says, oh, they're great chords, cool chords. You know, for him, he can, you know, he's a master piano player. There's nothing about chords he didn't know or have ever heard before. But what he didn't realize that they've, they're not usually coming out of a guitar. And so, anyway, this is just incredible. I, I can't... Um, you know, say so any more clearly than that. It's a revolution. be limited anymore. So I think this is a hugely significant and important thing for guitar players to try, at least try it. You know, I've put it in the hands of a lot of uh, well-known guitar players and, and, you know, they go like this, it just goes, oh, oh, wow, ah, (laughs) just watch them light up like like a Christmas tree. It's a beautiful thing just to yeah, just to see that happen. And uh, so it's amazing. It's a really cool sound tuning. Yeah, and they are absolutely amazing sounding chord voicings. They're so colourful, as you'd say. You're hearing the same chords, but just in voicings you can never do on guitar. And I can tell you, like, for someone who's, like, slaved away for hours trying to figure out your songs and, you know, get to the point where my fingers are going to snap off and go, how does he do it? And then to watch you play it effortlessly with these really, really simple shapes is just a total game changer. So uh, I'll definitely be jumping on board with this tuning. Um, so my next question would be, you know, where can people learn a bit more about it? Gambali tuning. It's called Gambali tuning. So it's called Gambali tuning. So do we find out about Gambali tuning from your online school? Is there a course on it there or some resources there? Nothing on that, uh, on this tuning yet. Uh, there's a couple of videos online, uh, you know, on my face, on my uh, YouTube channel. But I plan to do more shortly because it uh, needs to be uh, flourishing and more people need to hear it. So, yeah, I'll be, I'll be doing that soon. Fantastic. Now, I noticed, uh, you know, you recently relocated to Spain over during the pandemic, which had been a really, really tough time uh, for you, especially having to relocate countries. But musicians and teachers in general have just done it really rough, more so than a lot of other industries, because we obviously, you know, rely on being out there and performing and connecting with people uh, as a source of, you know, our art and our income. So, uh, the flip side of that is a lot of people had, you know, two years at locked at home, you know, I don't know about you, but me, I was right in my element, just creating content and making videos and building my online school and things like that. Not so much for everyone, but were you able to compose during the last two years of lockdown? Have you got anything really cool coming up? I do. Uh, I've, I've written a lot of 
things that need completing. So, you know, I just kept going from idea to idea to idea, which uh, now that I'm back off the tour for a while, the group I had on the road with me was blasting. So I'm really going to write for these guys. Um, but I also have a new video coming. It's a single. I don't usually release singles, but this, uh, one of the tunes I wrote that I loved during this period was, it's a tune called Happiness Is, and this is the first time I've mentioned it to anyone. I'm going to do a little press release. But it uh, features another fantastic Aussie buddy, uh, Tommy Emanuel, and the great Victor Wooten on bass, um, and a friend of mine, uh, Rick Lazar, uh, is the percussionist, uh, Canadian fellow. And, and it's a very, very cool uh, song that's just, it, you know, exudes uh, happiness. You know, because I was really happy, uh, even though we were in a pandemic, that was uh, one of the songs I finished, probably the only song in two years that I finished. I have a hundred ideas that I will now uh, proceed and finish that, uh, and make a new record as soon as I can. And, uh, but this happiness one is coming shortly, so look for that. The video is really cool. I had, uh, there's a fellow called Nigel Dick, uh, an unfortunate name, but he he hams it up all the time. Uh, an English director that directed some of the most um, iconic videos. I mean, he did Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's done Britney Spears, uh, Oops, I Did It Again, some major videos. And uh, fortunately for me, he's a guitar fan and he, he uh, admires my work. So he gives me the bro deal on uh, on video. And he, have you heard of Fiverr, the website Fiverr? Yeah. You know, it's amazing what you can get people to do for five bucks. And so Nigel put it out there and he got video from all over the place. We gave a little snippet of the, uh, of the intro as a teaser uh, so they could get the feel and dance. And we even have a guy dancing with his camel in the Sahara. I mean, wow. <laughs> pretty incredible. People from all over the world contributed to this video uh, in their form of happiness. So I'm really excited to release that soon. You know, and it's a very cool guitar song, actually, as well. Uh, there's no keyboards on this particular song, it's uh, percussion, bass, and guitars. And Tommy, plays a beautiful solo, and it's lovely to have Tommy, a fellow Aussie, that I've wanted to do something with uh, for the longest time, and we've talked about it for a long time, so we finally did something, and so that's coming soon. That sounds terrific. Well, I'm definitely uh, keen to hear that. You know, two amazing, two total world-class, you know, virtuoso players in you know, very different fields, oh, and, you know, on one track, definitely excited for it. We'll definitely put the word out to the listeners once that one's released. Um, but you mentioned, you know, having a bunch of ideas and only really finishing off one, which I think is like a universal problem for guitar players and songwriters in general is hitting that initial spark of inspiration, then hitting a wall and, you know, either giving up or running out of the next idea. So what advice would you have or processes do you follow in your own composition for seeing songs all the way through to completion? Uh, there's lots of things you can do. It's always important to finish songs you know you can't just let them hang there's there's a couple of reasons why songs are not finished 
either in a hurry, you just want to jot the idea down so you don't forget it and you come back later and develop it. That's one. Uh, another is you get come to a roadblock, you know, and you go, what the hell am I going to do now? Or how can I make this go to the next bit? You know, that happens a lot. And I, you know, it's no exception for me either. I come to roadblocks and I go, what the hell? I remember there was this, my latest album, Salve, it's an all vocals album, but there's a lot of instrumental sections. And there's one song called Love Is Always The Answer. And I wrote maybe 15 bridges for this thing, for that song, because I was never satisfied. I went, you know, I've written a lot of music. I have, you know, almost 400 songs published and, you know, I've written for other people and my own albums. And damned if I want to repeat myself, you know, I want to be able to continuously find chord progressions I've never heard or I've never written, you know. And so I would write one and go, it's okay, but I don't, you know, I'm, with my music, I don't want to compromise ever. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's, it's work sometimes. You actually have to sit and labor and try to find that magical progression or magical melody. But you don't stop until you do, you know. Uh, that was one of the hardest bridges I ever encountered, but I came up with one that is also one of the best I've ever written. So, you know, it, sometimes that's the case. You know, I tell people there's lots of ways to finish a song. You can take a, a block of music, sheet music, empty, and just fill in bars. You go eight-bar introduction, eight bars. You just do draw the bar lines, eight-bar or 12-bar verse, eight-bar bridge, chorus out. Just write the form, and then you fill in the chords, put in some chords, even off the top of your head. And then you find a melody that will go with that and you have a completed song form. You know, there's lots of ways to do it. There's no one way to write. Now, I tend to like to uh, write on guitar or piano. And, you know, I'm in that, I'm about to begin that process now. And I have a lot of very cool ideas that need to be finished and made into a record because I want to get them out. There's some moves and harmonic interests that I've never written before, some very cool stuff. So it's a labour of love. I, I have mixed emotions when I, uh, you know, when I'm finished a song because I go, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. It's a labour of love. You have to sit and work at it or write new stuff where you sit down, get all your machines on, turn on your drum machines and loops, uh, you know, if you've got a little keyboard vamp or, you know, in an hour sitting down with your toys, if you can't come up with a riff or something, that you might try a nice, exciting career in highway cone placement. You know, you might, uh, you know, you really, uh, after an hour of jamming, you should be able to find a riff or something that, that's worthwhile pursuing as an idea, a musical idea. So it's work. It's labor of love, you know. It's especially if you want to write something interesting and something fresh. Most definitely. So yeah, anyone who's listening to this who's having trouble finishing things off, you know, I think the most important thing there you said is 
the fact that there's not one way to write a song. There's just you know many different tools and means of writing songs and composing and finishing things and you know exploring all your different options and coming from different points of view. Sometimes you know if you're stuck doing the same thing over and over again, try something different. Yeah, I, I see some apps now that you can just drag chords in and oh, that's, those things frighten the life out of me. So uh, you know, so I guess it's for people who can't figure out what a chord is uh, or which ones go together. But, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, I, I have a fear that that's just going to make everything sound the same, you know. So, uh, well, I think if you do listen, you know, to contemporary radio, then, you know, of course, that is the result that we're hearing in a lot of the stuff. But, you know, the, the one solace in that is when we listen to stuff like yours and a lot of the jazz stuff where you're continuing to push the boundaries of, you know, harmony and, and what is possible and always trying new things, that's why that sounds so refreshing is because it's in stark contrast to, you know, contemporary music where it does feel like the bar is forever being lowered and, you know, record companies or pop artists, you know, they just keep going with the, uh, you know, the one, four, six, five, all those kind of four chord progressions because it's a, a recipe that works. So I don't know, I, I'm aware of uh, your time, Frank. I don't want to run too much longer if you've got somewhere to be, um, but maybe someone who's cut a lot of sessions and, and performed with, you know, the who's who of people, what's it like, um, you know, from the inside of the record industry uh, and what are some, you know, tips aspiring artists should know, you know, who do want to have a music career in this current, you know, new age post-pandemic digital world we find ourselves in? Well, you know, uh, record companies still do exist. Depends how free you want to be. We always imagine that record companies are going to help us take us to whatever level uh, you know, I can't really speak about the pop world because that's not the world I'm in. Uh, in 98, I started my own record label because, again, I wanted to have full control over my albums uh, because I, I had done five records with JVC Records, which was considered a major label at the time. And at one point, they just decided to pull out of America and they shut their catalog. I mean, so I had no access uh, to five albums that I did that were precious to me. Uh, and I, I tried to buy them back. I knocked on their door. I said, you can't just take them off the market. This is ridiculous. So that was, a, 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 you know, a, an alarm bell to me that made me go, I want to be able to own my records. You know, I don't want this to be a situation where, and, and so the technology exists these days and it's pretty easy. People record albums on a laptop. If you've got some good software and it all depends what you want in life, you know, if you want to try to get on the top of the charts, then you need to play that game. You probably need to have a good record company that's going to sign your band uh, get your band together or get your own material together. You have to have a demo of some sort. It's amazing to me how, how few artists or musicians have a good demo or one that they don't make excuses. Uh, you know, this is going to have strings and this is going to have a vocal choir. Don't leave anything to the imagination. I mean, it can be as simple as a piano voice or a guitar voice, but you need to have something great that represents you to be able to present at a moment's notice. Oh, uh, yeah, you're a musician, what do you do? Let me hear you, you know. You might run into somebody that 
you know, could help you go to the next level. You can go around publishers. Uh, you can knock on doors of publishers and try to get someone to listen to your songs. Or you can try the YouTube route. I mean, YouTube uh, is an amazing uh, marketplace, really. Uh, if you can crack that YouTube nut and build up a following on your social media, uh, you know, you've got to allow several years to build this up. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, so, you know, we're all doing it. We're all bolstering our careers through the World Wide Web this, these days. You know, we all have our social media outlets, and they can really, you know, you, you can pay for advertising online too, and it's relatively inexpensive, whether it's a YouTube ad or a, and you can target. It's so amazing that you could target a city. On this last tour I just did, we had sellout shows everywhere. And I spent some money targeting with Facebook ads. I had an ad for the band, a little video that I'd created, one minute long, like a TV commercial. They're easy to make some clips of the band or clips of my music. And I was, I had all the dates of the shows and I targeted 25 mile radius around every city that we were at. And it works. It works. I don't know if the people would have been there without that or not. I don't know. But to me, uh, it seemed like it worked. And so there's all kinds of stuff you can do that uh, you just got to have your head on and figure out what is the, where's the water running downhill? Where's the easiest way to get to, to where you're going? Chart a course. <laughs> yeah. And for those who are switched on, you know, there's never been more opportunity. There's never been easier access to large audiences or great content online or just like me and you connecting right now there's never been a better time to you know be a musician or a music teacher or someone trying to get their music out to the world and it's you know absolutely amazing uh, but frank i've got one more question for you before we wrap it up and I, I really really appreciate your time today all the amazing wealth of knowledge that you're sharing with us and all of your experience has been absolutely terrific um, but before i ask my last question where can our listeners you know find you online connect with you buy courses access your music where should they be looking um, well, you know, I've, I've got two websites, obviously, at frankambali.com. Uh, the school website is frankambaliguitarschool.com, which you can access easily from frankambali.com. You know, and I also wanted to offer a, maybe we should have said this up front, maybe you can say it up front, is to offer a, a short time period coupon, special coupon for your listeners, and I've given it a name, Aussie 35, for a 35% discount off everything on frankandbarleyguitarschool.com, just for listening. Fantastic. Well, Frank, that's amazingly generous. I'm going to take full advantage of that. And I know a number of students of mine will, and I'm sure within the, uh, the greater audience we will. That was Aussie 35. Was that correct? Aussie 35, A-U-S-S-I-E 35. No space. Fantastic. 
So that'll go live. I, we'll be a couple of weeks. This is obviously recorded a, a couple of weeks ahead of when the listeners get it, but we'll make sure we tie it up so it goes for about two weeks, I guess, or so from the date of airing. Uh, and we'll make sure we pump that on the socials and the mailing list so everyone knows all about it. Um, but Frank, what's one final piece of wisdom that you would impart on guitar players and guitar teachers, you know, uh, from the wealth of your experience, all the things you've learned, what would you impart as your final wisdom to our listeners? Um. You know, I think, and this is a, a, a life philosophy as well, is enjoy the journey. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. So enjoy the process of learning and never stop learning. When you stop learning, you may as well hang it up. You know, keep it going. Even if you learn one little thing a day or a week, We'll leave it at that. Make it easier for you. <laughs> Learn one new thing every week, and uh, so that would be my uh, my parting gift. Frank, thank you so much for coming on the Top Music Guitar Podcast, guys. You heard where you can uh, check him out: www.frankgambali.com and frankgambaliguitarschool.com. And don't forget the discount Aussie thirty five. So, Frank, once again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I wish you all the best. And uh, definitely keen to hear that new single when it drops and to check out the video for it as well. So thanks once again. You're welcome, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again. We'll see you guys on the next episode. If you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. For links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co slash guitar or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.